It's certainly a privilege once again to bring before you the Word of God, and today we will be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, so if you have your Bibles, I would appreciate you turning with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. We began our study, which will be um, somewhat of a high-level study from a substance perspective, uh, but as we look at each chapter, or each chapter that we look in, I should say, uh, we look to uh, do justice to the Word of God, and we certainly want to gain what the Spirit would have in store for us. So, today we come to a passage of Scripture which I can assure you that there is no shortage of sermons, uh, whether you look in the bookstore or if you go online and listen to various preachers and speakers who have addressed this chapter, from missions conferences to uh, personal growth conferences to uh, Christian education curriculum. I mean, Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those passages of Scripture that I trust that as soon as you hear it, something comes to mind as far as some familiarity with what is there. If not, I hope beginning today that there will not be a day that goes by should you hear some reference to Isaiah chapter 6 that you'll, you'll catch what's going on. Now, with all those sermons out there, you may have two basic responses to the message today. One might be, why didn't Mark just play one of those messages instead of that one? Uh, or uh, you may uh, ask, you know, where, where were those at? And I would like to go listen to that one anyway. Uh, but I hope that as we study together Isaiah chapter 6, that our hearts will be changed. Uh, I will acknowledge before you, uh, this is a very overwhelming passage of scripture to preach, teach, or just simply to study. I don't take it lightly, and I wish that I could take it as seriously as it is intended to be taken. Our worship, our life, our purpose in life uh, is grounded in the God that we see presented to us in Isaiah chapter 6. So before I go any further, I'm going to ask for help for me and for you and to all of our church family who hears this. Father, we thank you that we can come boldly before your throne because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We thank you that we are aware of this and it has been revealed to us because your word has given it to us. And it is that word that we come to today that while this is no more important than any other passage of scripture, it reveals to us some very precious truths, Lord, that will not only affect today, but it will carry out its effect through all of eternity. The God that we confront here in Isaiah chapter 6 is a God that can either provide us life or be the one who judges us righteously in our sin. So Father, I pray for open eyes that we might see and understand. I pray that you give us open ears that we might hear that we might believe, that you would grant us faith, and that you give us life as we partake of your word today, as your Holy Spirit teaches us today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't have to wonder much about what this particular young person was thinking uh, as Amy and I were walking through the mall and Amy pointed out, did you see that t-shirt? And the t-shirt read, Jesus thought I was to die for. Unfortunately, that sort of thinking is not isolated with just a few people wearing that t-shirt. God and God's purpose in our lives has become too small and man has become too important. We have diminished his goodness with an unbalanced view of good and misdiagnosed our wretchedness as a weakness or simply a disease. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says one reason that people are confused about who God is is that people have ceased to recognize the reality of their own sinfulness, which imparts a degree of perversity and enmity against God to all that they think and do. And even the church is guilty of promoting a healthy self-image over humble self-abasement. We struggle with social, financial, educational, political problems from a man-centered perspective and hope that God will somehow elevate us above our circumstances rather than expect him to transform us by his grace in the midst of them. A.W. Tozer went on to say in his book, The Holiness of God, it was common, it was a common thing in olden days when God was the center of human worship to kneel at an altar and shake, tremble, weep, and perspire in the agony of conviction. We don't see it now because the God we preach is the everlasting, awful God, mine only one who is our of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity, based on Habakkuk 1. We've forgotten that God. We have abandoned that God in pursuit of a bumper sticker that says, Smile, God loves you. Now there's truth in the fact that God loves us. The Bible makes it clear that God, who is love, loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But if that's the only God that we know, we have an unbalanced view of who God is. And Isaiah, the prophet, is not alien to the condition that we live in in contemporary life today. The year that he saw the Lord, as he writes about here in Isaiah chapter 6, was in the same year that King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah, or if you look at the passage in 1 Kings, named also Azariah, he reigned during the 8th century B.C. He reigned for over 50 years. That meant someone like myself could have been born and been up to the end of their life before his reign was over. Would have never known another king. His reign was impressive. Second Chronicles chapter 26 says in verse 4 
that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 5 says that he set himself to seek God. Verse 6 goes on to say that God also made him prosper as long as he sought the Lord. He reigned with power and the land was prosperous and peaceful. However, in 2 Kings chapter 15, we read that he did not remove the high places and the people of the land continued to worship there. The prophet Hosea preached against their sin of idolatry during this time as well. However, the most telling fact about Uzziah, we read back in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, was that when he was strong, he grew proud. He grew proud to his destruction, such that he entered the temple to burn incense, which was, as God puts it, an unfaithfulness to the Lord that resulted in him living the rest of his life as a leper. That was his epitaph. The last words that we know about Uzziah from Scripture is that he was a leper. Because he was so arrogant and proud to think that his king, with all the strength and with all the prosperity that he was living and brought upon his people, that he could go in and do the priestly work in the temple to burn the incense on behalf of the people. That which God did not call him to do. That which he was not prepared to do. And because of that, he suffered at the end of his life and died. And as often as the case, as the leader goes, so did the people. As we discovered in Isaiah chapter 1, the people of Judah were wicked and Isaiah brought God's indictment against them. However, this same God who brought the indictment and word of judgment against them also offered them hope if they just simply turned. They were warned. Uh, the exile was in their future in chapters 2 through 5. However, God continued to provide a message of hope. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 6. One of the more intriguing passages of Scripture where Isaiah sees the Lord. If you will, follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 through verse 4. In the year of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah says he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. This position of being lifted up is interesting contrast. If you recall in John chapter 12, there was a, a, a word asking, will you show your glory? And, and God says, I have shown it and I will show it again. And the way he was going to show his glory is when Jesus Christ himself was lifted up. Now the vision that Isaiah saw of the Lord was on a throne. The words of Jesus Christ was speaking about the king who sits on the throne being lifted up on a cross. The Lord was seated in glory on his throne while his name would be glorified when Jesus was lifted up to die for our sins. The people in Jesus' day understood that when he was going to be lifted up, that he meant that he was going to be crucified. 
Ultimately, we understand from the story of Scripture that even that one who was lifted up to be crucified on our behalf for our sins will be the one who is seated on the throne that Isaiah saw high and lifted up. But the Lord was not simply on His throne, but the train of His robe filled the temple. The train of a king's robe is a measure of his status. So if you look at a, a pageant, uh, or if you look even at a wedding, uh, you see that uh, there's glory and, and adoration towards one when you have a long train at the end of your gown. When a king had a long flowing robe, oftentimes it indicated that that was how successful he had been in military uh, campaigns or in overtaking other lands. And here Isaiah sees the Lord with the king's robe uh, being very long, it's so much that it filled the temple or the, the dwelling place where God was at. As R.C. Sproul put it, he was judged by the stuff and substance of his clothing. And God's robe filled the entire area. There were also the presence of seraphim. Now sometimes we get a little bit too romantic with our thoughts of what heaven looks like and, and the angelic beings. We have to understand that this word for seraphim literally means a fiery serpent. Their presence in the temple suggests that they were angelic. However, it wasn't the picture that we have of floating around like butterflies with wings, but we're talking about in, 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 serpents. This is the same word that when Moses gave instruction to the children of Israel after they had uh, been disobedient and gathered more manna than they were instructed to take, and serpents filled the land, and God instructed Moses to make a, a large brass serpent so that when people looked up at it, they would be healed from the disease that came from being bitten by these snakes. I don't think it again it gets too disconnected when you think about the one who is high and lifted up in this passage of Isaiah chapter 6 is the same Lord that that brass serpent back in the wilderness was pointing towards. The one who would be high and lifted up. But the seraphim here aren't beautiful little creatures that we think about as angels, but we're talking about very fiery creatures in the presence of God. They had their wings one to cover their eyes because of the glory of God. One was to cover their mouth because of the humility that or their face. And then one to fly or one to cover their feet. But with their mouth was wide open. Their purpose was to proclaim the glory of God. And what did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of His glory. Everywhere you look, you can see the glory of God. And of all the words that are used three times over to describe or to characterize our God, is holy. 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 God is love. But there's nowhere in Scripture where there's ever a proclamation that God is love, love, love. God is truth. But there's nowhere in Scripture that says God is truth, truth, truth. God is patient. God is merciful. God is righteous. 
There's all different types of words that describe our God and characterize His nature. But the only place that we have in Scripture where there is a threefold repetition of the description of God is holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew language doesn't have words that we use as adjectives. The only way that someone speaking or writing in Hebrew that could elaborate or accentuate is to repeat. And what God chooses to repeat about Himself through the words of these seraphim is holy. 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 And if you think back to our experiences in our life and in our worship and in the world in which we live, one of the things that we see the, the, the least amount of is holy. As Christians, we talk a lot about love. We've got to love our neighbor. We've got to love those people who are different than us. We, we challenge each other to love people uh, who are our enemies. It's a Bible-believing church. We're all about preaching the truth and making sure we get the truth out there. Making sure we're right. There's all different types of things that we pursue in ministry of the church in our personal lives. But the thing that is most important to God about Himself, the one thing that we'll be singing for all of eternity throughout heaven, is holy, holy, holy. I'm convicted even myself when I come into the worship service. As a matter of fact, I brought the worship guide just to make sure that we still had this on there. Uh, I'm not sure who... I can remember this from the very first Sunday that we visited. It says on the front... As you enter the worship area, please be in prayer, asking the Lord would prepare you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I'm convicted because there's a lot of times I'll be sitting over here right up to the minute that Pastor Charlie comes up and starts greeting. Because I'm busy about doing a lot of other things. Fellowship's great. I love fellowship. Making our way from classroom to sanctuary... You know what, there's a lot of things that can happen in between a lot of distractions. But I ask you, just as I ask myself, how much time have you prepared? How much time have I prepared for this time of worship? Does it reflect the holiness of God? Is there a sense in which while Amy's playing, and of course she's human, she can be just as distracted as anybody else, but she prepares. And while she's playing, is, does, does it cause you to reminisce in your mind some of the words of the hymns that she may be playing that you're familiar with? Or maybe there's an opportunity for you just to kind of prepare yourself so that from the very beginning that we have scheduled to corporately make much of our God together. Are we thinking about His holiness? Now, yes, I could go on a tangent and say, well, if you dress the right way, if your hair is the right length, or if you say the right things, or you listen to the right music, then you're holy. No, that's not what Isaiah is speaking about here. Isaiah is speaking about a divine being who is so beyond anything that we can perceive. This is more righteous and more good, more pure than anything that we can imagine. 
One commentator said, The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection in total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. You say, well, Mark, I, I don't talk like that. I, I, I don't have conversations with people like that. Maybe we should. Maybe we settle for the way we think about God because, as Tozer said, and I agree, what we think about in our minds when we think about God says more about us than anything that we can anything else that we do. Jai Packard adds, when God is declared to be holy, the thought is of all that separates him and sets him apart and makes him different from his creatures. That is his greatness and his purity. The whole spirit of the Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. The constant emphasis was that human beings, because of their weakness as creatures and their defilement as sinful creatures, must learn to humble themselves and be reverent before God. Religion was fear the Lord. It was stressed that we must keep our place and our distance in the presence of a holy God. Did you wake up thinking about God like that today? May God help us think about him like that every day, throughout the day. Now we'll consider Isaiah's reaction and response to God's holiness in just a little bit, but let's continue on with this description that he sees. He also says not only was, did he see him sitting on a throne and, his, and these seraphim who were saying to one another, holy, 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 he also saw the, the house or the temple was filled with smoke. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament, you recall that the wilderness, there was a cloud of smoke that led them through the wilderness. There in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was in the holy place smoke that filled the room that were representing God's glory. And one day, as the seraphim cry out, the earth will be full of God's glory. But then he himself, according to Revelation chapter 21, will be the temple. He won't be filling the temple. He'll be the temple. And those of us who belong to him will have all of eternity to dwell in him. Let's consider now this exclusive opportunity that Isaiah had. Let's, let's do understand that Isaiah was not in heaven seeing God for who he, for exactly you know, directly because as Exodus 33 says, no one can see God's glory and live. However, there were those like uh, Moses. He caught a glimpse. He asked God. He wanted to see his glory, but God said, no, I'm just going to put you behind this rock and I'm going to let you see after I pass by. He saw a glimpse. And Moses also was able to, once he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law came down and the glory from just receiving the word of the Lord caused his face to shine so bright that he had to wear a veil over it. People were distracted by it. But that still wasn't seeing God completely in his glory. We do, however, have a promise. 1 John chapter 3 
that one day we will see him as he is. How? Because we will be like him. But that's the only way that we're going to be able to hold the full glory of God is to be like him. And we're not going to be glorified. We're not going to be like him until that day when we see him, either through death or when he comes back. And only those, as Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, says, those who will see God will be the pure in heart, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Peter kind of reflects us over in Luke chapter 5 when they were fishing. They couldn't find any fish in their net, but Jesus helps them and they bring in more fish than they can handle demonstrating his divine power so much to the point where Peter saw Christ and he said depart from me for I'm a sinful man now some of you men go to the beach and uh, say that you've found many fish at the end of your pole I'm not sure if that's true or not uh, photoshop pictures you know don't count but I'm not sure that many fishermen gain such a bountiful collection of fish and resort to saying, I'm a sinful person. But when you see God at work, and you see His greatness, you see His glory, it changes your perspective. And Peter's response was very much like what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 from Isaiah where he says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the proper response. That's a normal response to seeing the glory of God. Then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Woe is me! Now in chapter 5, Isaiah pronounced woe upon those who heap up too much, drink early and often, pull sin their way, call evil good and good evil, are wise in their own sight, and are heroes at drinking wine. Those are all situations that Isaiah just pronounced woe upon the nation. But here in chapter 6, upon seeing the Lord, the King upon his throne, woe is me. And what was the reason for that? Woe, which is an expression of grief and despair, an awareness of doom. Isaiah now pronounces woe upon himself in view of the king because he's lost. When was the last time? When was the first time 
do you recognize woe to yourself, for yourself, upon yourself? You see, Isaiah didn't have low self-esteem. He didn't suffer from being a victim all of his life. He didn't even grow up in the wrong area without the right resources. He was lost. He was undone, as the King James puts it. The word literally means to be silenced. It's kind of like a town that has been ravaged by pirates and, and convicts and thieves and left silent. That's what our life is in sin. We have been ravaged. The life has been stolen from us. We deserve wrath. And the only thing that's left when we look to ourselves, in ourselves, and for ourselves is silence. Empty. Woe. In chapter 15, Isaiah uses that phrase to be silenced to describe the result of being violently destroyed. Sister Mitsuko isn't here today, but I think about back in World War II. And there were two atomic bombs that were dropped in hopes that that would somehow end the conflict that was taking place on that side of the world. But what those two bombs did utterly left that place empty. And if you think that your life is any more than that, spiritually speaking, as a result of sin, you're mistaken. For the Bible pronounces a woe upon us in our sin. And when we see a proper vision of the glory of God, we'll see that in ourselves, as Isaiah did. God loves His holiness with infinite love and cherishes His purity. This is the starting point for understanding God and man and the world, says John Piper. If we don't start here, everything goes askew. If we don't feel a sense of awe and fear and admiration for the infinite holiness of God, which opposes evil with wrath and fury, then all of our other feelings and thoughts will be defective at best. If you don't see the glory and the wonder of who God is, then every pursuit that you have in life will be nothing more than destructive. If we don't see the holiness of God as a thing to be enjoyed, if we don't see the glory of God as something to be obtained and something that I cling to, then everything else that you pursue is, is a misguided pursuit that will lead you to destruction. I recently asked someone that I perceived had been faithful in church all of their life. They, they professed to be a believer. I've known them for, for quite some time. And in a conversation, I, I just simply said, you know what, in, in all the conversations we've had, I've never asked you how you came 
to Christ. There was a pause. How I came to Christ. I said, yeah, as you became a believer. They went on to talk about things I've heard from other people. You know, I, I grew up, my, my mom took us all to church, went to Sunday school, saw someone go forward. I felt impressed to do the same. Got baptized, got married, take my kids to church. And I'm, I'm trying not to let it be red all over my face. Do you need me to repeat the question? I knew all that about him, pretty much. I guess I was longing to hear something similar to Isaiah's story. I guess I was hoping to hear that they, say they saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and was overwhelmed with their sin and sought mercy because of their sin. I was wishing that the goodness and the holiness of God was valuable and worth giving up everything else to embrace it. I guess I was listening for something that I struggled to own for myself. But I still don't write this person off as an unbeliever. But it sure would have been great to have heard a testimony that would make it very clear. To be like Isaiah or Peter or others in Scripture as to what defines a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember, while I certainly did not have the understanding about theology and couldn't have experienced a Christian life to any degree, I do remember the night that the cross was preached. And in spite of the fact that I had grown up and spent the first 13 years of my life going to church, knowing about Jesus, singing in the youth choir, helping with vacation Bible school, at that particular night I remember seeing Jesus Christ on a cross for my sin and knowing that I was not saved. I remember, there's a time I remember, my sin has not yet been dealt with. My sin is still my own and, and I have not placed my trust in what I'm hearing about. There was, there was a moment, while I didn't understand it nearly as much as I do now, while I understand that I'm much more of a sinner than I ever would have been aware of when I was 13, I remember there was a moment in my life where I recognized that I am wrong. I'm on my way to hell. I've offended God. And Jesus Christ died in my stead. And that was the beginning of the next 36 plus years of my life in which through valleys and over mountaintops and through caves and tunnels and 
Green pastures that I've learned just how sinful I am, but how much more glorious I ever knew God to be. Isaiah declared that he was a man with unclean lips. His mouth, therefore, was also defiled. Jesus taught in Matthew 15 that what comes out of the mouth defiles a person because what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So Isaiah acknowledges that he, on his own, is not fit for ministry. He's as, just as unclean as those who need to hear the message. As I preach this message now, I do it reluctantly because I realize I need this message as much if not more than you do. I need to be reminded about God's holiness in a practical way in my life more than any of you do. But I know that this is a message that we all need to hear because of who we are. Paul, however, declares to Timothy in the second letter, chapter 2, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And I trust that that's where we find ourselves being led by the Spirit according to His truth. As we think about our practical existence as believers, I'm reminded it's recent if you compare it to maybe a Fanny Crosby song, but it's not that new. But you may recall singing a song uh, that calls us to worship that goes something like this. Come just as you are to worship. Come just as you are before your God. Come. While I believe that the writer of that praise song had the best of intentions. I believe that we are, it's important for us to understand while we come to Jesus without pretense or without any significance in ourselves, we don't dare come before him undone. R.C. Sproul said only the justified person can be comfortable in the presence of a holy God. And thankfully, according to what Paul wrote in chapter 5 of his books to Romans, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So while we could hope that we could um, make sure everybody understood it when we said, come just as you are to worship, Maybe it's better that we just simply sing as the old hymn says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, flee to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. It is here, in this passage, that we find grace. Without asking, expecting, demanding, or assuming, Isaiah found grace. The seraphim touched his mouth with a coal from the altar and the guilt was taken away and his sins were atoned for. He had peace with God. He was now able to enjoy being in the presence of God as opposed to being afraid for his life in the presence of God. 
So I ask you again, have you acknowledged your sin before God? Are you trusting in the atoning work of Jesus Christ as a payment for your sin? His sacrifice on your behalf? If not, please hear the words of Paul, or the writer of Hebrews. Today is the day of salvation. And if we have, then what's next? Verse 8, Isaiah goes on to say, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then after a long gasp, that's not included in Scripture, but I'm assuming that Isaiah had after he heard this, then I said, How long, O Lord? How how long am I going to do that? And the Lord said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken pieces are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remains in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. While we will be anxious to follow swiftly and closely after God, when we've seen his glory, we've humbled ourselves in our sin and experienced the wonderful grace of God that forgives us of our sin, and we're ready to serve him, don't expect what comes natural. Who shall go for us? The Lord says. I'll go. I'm ready. My lips have been cleaned. My sins have been atoned for. Okay, we'll go tell these people. I'm going to destroy you. (laughs) Keep on listening, folks. But you're not going to understand anything. Keep on seeing. Keep on hearing the voice of Isaiah. But you're not going to understand. Now don't misunderstand what's going on here. I want you to recognize the fact that it is the Lord who's initiating this communication. That it is God himself who is saying to Isaiah, I've got something to say. See, we live in a world where we believe that even if we can get somebody to agree that there is some sort of creator or some intelligent design back there, that there is no direct communication and he sort of left us alone. And so therefore, we're, we're not necessarily an atheist, we're just agnostic. We, we just don't know what's out there. No, God intervenes. God has used his word in a special revelatory way to tell us exactly who he is, who we are, and the importance of it all. And this is, a, this is an act of compassion. That God is speaking to his people again. 
But it's no different than when Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, Harvest is plenty, plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He is even beckoning today. There's a harvest. I believe there's a harvest at Salem College. I believe there's a harvest that Salem College students are going to be able to reach into that the faculty and even Karen's not able to reach. I believe there's a harvest in the military where we have chaplains that are serving. I believe there's a harvest in the colleges, in the, in the, even the elementary schools where our, where our members are actively training in and, and teaching in. I believe there's a harvest in the, in the hospitals and in the, in the doctor's offices where we work. I believe there's a harvest at the office where I work. I believe there's a harvest here in Wahlberg, yes. in High Point, in Winston-Salem. The Lord is saying, who's going to go? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He may send forth laborers to bring in whom He has chosen to save. But sometimes the message is not what we would expect. And perhaps you've encountered giving a message of truth and it seemed to only stop up the ears of the hearer even more. The more you tried to explain the truth and the goodness of God in the Scriptures, from the Scriptures, by the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, they couldn't see anything. It just didn't make sense. Don't be deceived. God's Word will accomplish exactly what He wills. And while it may just... Confuse us and God. Why this this persuaded someone to follow Christ, but yet the same message is taking the same person and is driving them further and further away. This is the holy, righteous work of God, and that's what God's word does. It reveals, it shines light in a world of darkness. It was a message that was going to make their heart dull. Literally means it comes from a word full of richness, like having eaten too much and you're lazy. Make heavy ears, make them dull. You may recall from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, that same dullness of hearing kept them from growing and being spiritually mature because they just weren't listening very well. And even blinded eyes, it's sort of, not to be too grotesque here, but just sort of like when you wake up in the morning, you can't quite see clearly and there's, you know, you need to clean that up somehow. But that's what God was telling Isaiah to do. Why? Why didn't God give them a chance? Why didn't God say, hey, you know what? I'm going to bring this nation up. I'm going to restore all these people. I'm going to take all these people worshiping over here in the high places. I'm going to bring revival to them. I'm going to set them up on a high place. I'm going to exalt them above all the other nations. Why doesn't he give them that message? He already had. He already had. And this is God's declaration that the time has come. No more. 
have my truth. You have my law. You have my prophets. You have the priesthood. And you rejected them. But more importantly, they rejected God. And now God is declaring their end. How long is he going to do it? Well, until they're all gone. And even if in this world in which we live, if God should choose to use you to witness and preach the gospel wherever you go, and you never see one person come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, glory in the fact that not only you have received that message, but that God is accomplishing His will through it, whether they believe or not. Now we praise His name when they do. We exalt Him and we celebrate when people come to know Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that God has called us to proclaim. Even till the end. But the message that was fulfilled even in Israel's day as they were one day taken away in the captivity, there was still a remnant. But notice the last, at least from the English Standard Version, where it says, And the tenth remains in it that will be burned again like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed, the holy seed is its stump. And just like when you go through the forest and you see trees that have been cut down or maybe broken over and you may see just a little growth coming out. That's an indication that life is still there. And to the people of Israel, to the land of Judah, even though they were given a message that they were going to be wiped out, they were going to be taken away, and there was going to be a remnant left, there was going to be a holy seed there, in, as it were, in one of those stumps. And that holy seed is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Who from the line, as the lion from the tribe of Judah came to save his people. As he, he's part of the remnant. God didn't completely destroy all of his people. And God still hasn't completely destroyed all of his people. And it's through that same holy seed. Do we have life today? It is through Jesus Christ that we can even approach that throne that we should be, in our own sin, scared to death of. But I've asked Richard, as much as he can squeak, and Heather, as much as she will assist, in leading us and singing a song of praise before the God, His throne, He's above we can boldly approach it because of what Jesus Christ does. And I want us as believers today to rejoice in that. But I want us to remind us that because we're approaching this holy throne, that it is that. It's a holy throne. And it is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can approach it. And I would implore you today, if you're convicted of your sin, if you're convinced of your need for a Savior, that as we talk about the holiness of God, that it would bring you to humility and that you would find the grace of God that will give you life and restore you and bring you peace.